welcome to like uh, five, six episodes, something I, higher. Wait, wait, we can count. We can like, count if it's us, Marlo, um, Arthur, Doug, Maggie. This would be episode six. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Welcome to episode six of the podcast that still has yet to be named. Mm-hmm. Um, I am your co-host Jan Horsberg, along Hi. with the other co-host. That would be me, Harry Minsky, and thank you for coming. <laughs> and today we have with us, I'm James Clemenhoff. Lovely. So, James, we've very appreciative to have you on here. This is a uh, conversation we've been looking forward to having for a while. As sort of it fits the niche of a podcast so so well we're james is our resident uh i guess i guess philosopher at this point yeah james is our resident high school philosopher head of philosophy club known for his um extensive philosophical takes and perusal into the depths of the uh sort of more obscure or at least uh more widened realms of thought man i'm making you sound like an asshole <laughs> don't, don't worry about it no no no, no. Uh, so, so. projection but anyway yeah so james is our our resident philosophy geek resident philosopher happy to have him here and we've had him on today continuing the theme of talking to people who've just you know got a, a certain niche in high school because we'd love to hear from him about philosophy and the way it's specifically manifested in his four years at north so james just to get the ball rolling would you like to give us a quick or however long you'd like a sort of rundown of your experience with philosophy, you know, like getting into texts, well, say from start to whenever it is that you made philosophy club. Sure. Uh, so I have to say like my, my philosophical history has been largely influenced by my brother who himself was a philosophy major at Bowdoin. Hence the Bowdoin philosophy shirt we got going on. Uh, and so from a pretty early age, his interest in philosophy guided my own. Uh, like <laughs> when I was in third grade, he would uh, read Thus Spoke Zarathustra, like the Nietzsche mm. book, as a bedtime story for me. Word. Which like definitely messed me up. <laughs> uh, but I think I then sort of separately through like YouTube and like extensive TED Talks, and uh, Crash Course Philosophy, shout out to Hank and John Green. Of course. Uh, sort of got, found my own interests uh, outside of my brother's sort of, I wouldn't say narrow, but he, he's much more like conceptual and I feel a little less practical than my own interests. I'm much more existentialist than like metaphysical or ethical. Mm. Uh, and so, yeah, I'd say philosophy has always been an interest of mine and some of my favorite conversations were always like philosophically oriented um, throughout my childhood. But I don't think I had sort of the language and the tools to like super explore it until high school, um, particularly because there was a community of people like you guys. I've had plenty of philosophical conversations with both of you. Um, there's a community of people at North who do like enjoy philosophical conversations and more abstract conversations. Um, and so throughout high school, I really enjoyed those conversations and philosophy club was something I wanted to start. I think even freshman year, I was really looking to start it. Um, 
but for a myriad of reasons and personal obstacles could not do so until senior year. Uh, yeah. Fun. Fun, fun, fun. So you built it up quite a few interesting terms there. And I think a great sort of continuing the starting point would be, and again, stop me if this is literally impossible, which I'm sure it is, which is the fun <laughs> part. But if yeah. you could maybe run through a few definitions of things like existentialism, uh, metaphysical, um, metaphysical, something that I'm still very unclear on. And if it's not literally, albeit, I guess we've been trying to do this for centuries. If you could give me say just your definition of philosophy. So say existentialism, metaphysical philosophy, what do those mean to you? Sure. So I like, I kind of like to simply sum up philosophy as asking what is knowledge what is reality? What is experience? And how should I navigate all those things? Mm. Um, and so I think your big central branches of philosophy sort of dovetail uh, together, uh, like through those three different experiential philosophy, reality, knowledge. Um, and so I think they're like supremely interconnected. Uh, so like, it, it's hard to say that one issue is purely an ethical issue and which makes like ethics itself hard to define, but nice. it's basically like simply ethics is like, how should we live? Um, and then I'd say metaphysics is like, what is reality? But the, what is knowledge is also sort of metaphysical because you can ask the question, how do we know how should we live or how do we know? what is real like there's there's all these meta questions that you can ask um so there's like meta ethics yeah there's all sorts of sort of these supremely interconnected topics that all fall under the umbrella of philosophy and would you say like existentialism is like one possible like answer to some of those questions well yeah so i think when you ask how should you live there's there's sort of the, the ethical, like the ethical take on that is the should, like they, it's all about the imperative. It's what you like need to do. Like you are an ethical person if you can do this. But I think existentialism is what should we want to do? Like, what mm. do you want to do? Um, and it's, it's not an imperative, but rather it's about meaning and like, uh, it's, it's a more personal, less imperative, uh, topic well that's something i um it's funny i always associate existentialism with like junior year junior year was existential existentialism for me because i um again with what my understanding of what existentialism is i feel like i've sort of like used it as a blanket term to just describe a general sense of like um questioning uh very fundamental truths that i'd always accepted as sort of um things that you know weren't to be questioned because you know what's past it but uh, you know asking like um what is it i like when i'm in school what am i actually working towards what is it like like i know that the linear progression is do well get into college get a job and then i started to ask myself like what do I want to do in college? What do I want to do with that job? Is it, am I really, have I spent time, too much time sort of pushing myself forward, thinking ahead that I've lost a sense of like what makes me happy and what I like to do day in, day out and sort of confronting those things was 
I'd say overall beneficial. Hard to say now, but maybe give it a year or two. Uh, but so I, I always, before that, and even still now a little bit, I do sort of associate the word existentialism with like teen angst, you know, which is For sure. funny because I, I find that with philosophical discussions, you can kind of pull some semblance of like grand philosophical um, theories about people or, or like grand philosophical conclusions about people from really anybody which is I guess what makes them grand like if you're talking to people at north like you can have sort of if you dig deep enough, deep enough you can get sort of anyone to to consider or at least just talk about something they've already considered about their place in the world or how, how they sort of have how they experience life a little deeper than just like you know, uh, attending classes and doing their extra curriculars, like what they're thinking. And you'll find that everyone, I've always had, the, I've had this conversation so many times um, of like, shit, you ever think about how everyone else is thinking? And then, and then, and then, and then it can just kind of spiral from there. But I, I enjoy it. I, I enjoy it a lot. I, I mean, it, it's weird to um, go into something like that, that has a sort of, sort of, I don't know if it's a stigma, but like, like you say, like existentialism, nihilism, philosophy, and it's just like, oh, nothing matters. Oh, nothing matters. Like, I'm going to go listen to Panic at the Disco. Nothing matters. <laughs> um, or Radiohead or whatever the kids are listening to these days. Um, <laughs> but it, it's definitely my, my perception of philosophy has changed a lot throughout high school. So as sort of a continuation from that, how would you say sort of your take on philosophy has developed over the specifically your four years in high school where if, if we disregard anything before high school as, as pre-self-actualization um <laughs> yeah sure um all right well first i kind of you threw a lot out there that i'm kind of interested to respond to uh, first off totally agree well so i think existentialism can like simply be summed down as to like the question why like mm -hmm. why am i doing this and the reason that you can get philosophical insight by from anyone uh, is just by asking the question why to them um, and it's why this <laughs> podcast is so interesting to me is because you have people approaching high school from totally different avenues and then you have people asking them why and hopefully you can garner some philosophical insight from that uh, okay yeah that was responding to your point but to answer the question uh, I mean I've been at times disenchanted with philosophy um but that's more of the sort of academic philosophy mm. um which i feel gets nitpicky and at times uh almost impractical um because when when you get so caught up in ideas and the sort of thoroughness of uh argument uh and so focused on clarity at times you forget how those ideas actually matter, mm. uh, which is why I think I'm more generally drawn to existentialism because it's all about why what you do and think matters. Um, and so I've also think that philosophy for me uh, has been a real crutch of mine in many ways, emotionally, uh, which I think might differ some from some people because I think it's like rather than teenage angst, um, I found a lot of solace in philosophy 
Uh, there's first, I, I generally believe that once you abstract an emotion, so once you like sort of take the meta step on asking like, why am I feeling this? You'll stop feeling it. Mm. <laughs> I, I think you can't think about an emotion and feel it at the same time. Oh, that's, that's sort of a side, uh, sort of side thesis belief I have that has generally helped me in moments of despair. Mm. Uh, but I think the, the bigger, more like fundamental change, uh, that it's, it's less of how I view philosophy and more how philosophy has made me view my life is that by like sort of delving into existentialism, um, I found it lifted a great weight off my shoulders um, in that if, like, if the teenage angst of, like, nothing matters is true, uh, anytime you feel any sort of stress or anything, it doesn't matter. And typically that doesn't help. But in my view, so, like, uh, I'll, get a little, I'll get a little personal and... Uh, in order to get some anecdotal evidence. Ethos, but, uh, ethos, ethos. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when I, like, with colitis, mm. I feel like my first extended period of absences is when I, like, really had the time to delve into philosophy. Uh, and I was watching all sorts of videos on, like, these shows I really liked. And I, I didn't know that there was such, like, a deeper meaning behind, like, Rick and Morty or BoJack Horseman, like all those um, shows and the sort of Wisecrack, shout out to Wisecrack, the YouTube channel. Mm. So like Wisecrack breakdown introduced me to um, a lot of philosophies that I really uh, messed with. Uh, like I said, because of that, I started reading like Camus, uh, the myth of Sisyphus, which mm. is like my, I don't know, the, the, I, I have very few beliefs. I sometimes like to think that I'm a bad philosopher, but a good listener because I don't have many beliefs myself, but I'm open to a lot of them. Mm. Uh, but one belief I really do hold is the sort of Sisyphean belief that like, while there might be this sort of absurdity that we go in day out, day in and day out, sort of doing our own thing, like without much purpose at all, like, because it's all dwarfed by, I don't know, the vastness of the universe or the fact that we'll all disappear. Yeah, all, all that nihilistic stuff. Um, so it, it seems like why are we going through this drudgery of the same thing over and over? Um, and so Camus says, like, you must imagine Sisyphus happy. So Sisyphus, who was condemned in hell to roll a boulder up a hill, only to have it roll back down on him. Uh, you must imagine that guy happy. Mm. And I don't know, I always, I always sort of took to that. And so I was like, going into, <laughs> I was going through sort of the Sisyphean process of missing school, making up work, missing school, making up work, all for naught. Um, but a, if I could just like maintain a smile through it, uh, I'd be, it'd be chill. Like it's all good. There, there's sort of a, a few avenues you can take when you realize like how profoundly uh, unbound you are in that like 
meaningless to me is sort of an unbounding uh, in that you're not limited by anything. You can do whatever you want, truly. And it doesn't matter. Uh, and to some, that's a really anxiety-provoking idea because it's like, if I can do whatever I want, how, how do I decide? But to me, it's just like, yeah, just, just do whatever and be happy. Like, uh, yeah. Do it. I don't care. Yeah. Just do it. Fucking do it, man. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm that, really... Huh? That, that's interesting because, I don't know, in my personal experience with philosophy, I've kind of enjoyed, like, I've completely enjoyed talking about it and you know having conversations but i feel like i'm more enjoy- i more do it just for the enjoyment within that conversation rather than feeling like it's going to bring me some greater enlightenment or actually like improve my what my life in a profound way but you seem like you've really embraced it to the point where it has i think you said like in moments of despair helped you like have like be grounded and has actually made you happier is that oh for sure sure. i almost i almost consider existentialism as like a personality trait like it's so (laughs) foundational (laughs) to like the way i see the world um that it's more than just an intellectual like argument to me Mm. how would you say you've like embraced it in that way to really like as you said, make it like part of your personality rather than something you talk about with friends, just like sports or whatever. I mean, I, I truthfully, I think it's like, you know, in um, Inside Out, how they have the like core memories and those core memories um, <laughs> are the foundation of like a whole island mm-hmm. of like, I, I did and not that like island that represents a personality trait. Oh, it's a great movie. Come I thought it was on. fine. Uh, I thought it was good. <laughs> Anyways, I, I feel that I have a couple of like crucial core moments that I really felt like, and, and I use the word felt intentionally because it wasn't like something I came to intellectually. It was like I felt meaninglessness. And in those moments, they weren't like sad, they were freeing. And based on those few core memories, there was this sort of foundation I was able to build up of this, my general way of being more than just like a thing I talk about. Hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I don't think, it, I think it's more a feeling to be felt and built on than a, a thing to think about. Um, if you want to make it like a personality. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Sort of similar to Jan. I've, come to appreciate philosophy as or I guess philosophical conversations generally like conversations that dig past the first few layers we all know what we're talking about um but the uh what is it at one point when I first started having them I was like oh my god why don't I much more real I like having them they're certainly it's nice to spice things up with them but what I find with philosophy is that the conversations themselves don't lead me to um, new beliefs so much as ratify beliefs that I get through real life experience, if that makes sense. Like, um, what is it? I, I, I can talk about like truly feeling like um, I'm trying to think of a good example. Like, okay, this is a terrible example. 
simple. And I don't want, and I'm glad that we have no current platform to share these. So I'm just going to say, <laughs> but so I spent 11th grade, um, uh, like a good third of 11th grade having the what is art and better yet, what makes good art conversation with like a dozen different people, 10, 20 people. If, if you talk to some of my friends, they all remember, God, they remember. Um, because it was such a, it was such an interesting conversation, but it was always like, you know, it's subjective, blah, blah, blah. It's, it's just, you know, is it talent? Is it creativity? Does it have to defy your expectations? Blah, 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 whatever. Basically the conclusion we came to is, um, objectively, nothing is objective, which is a really, really funny way of just saying, all I know is that I know nothing, which my boy Socrates was peeping back in the year 300. And that sentence meant nothing to me. Like I'd heard it before. I was just like, oh, this is just hoity-toity philosophical talk. But after you spend like three months trying to figure out what makes like some subjective art form good and you realize that there just isn't anything or, or, or you personally realize that, not to say that that's the final conclusion, but if you come to that conclusion after just like what feels like wasting basically three months, 72, uh, 72 days, no, 90 days, lots of hours. And you're just like, fuck. But then you can articulate it so well. And then it's like, ah, that's kind of fun. That's kind of funny. Like you can um, put it out there and be like, like, I truly believe this. And now I can talk about it as something that like I've experienced going through. Um, but also, I guess that sort of detracts from my original point of like, the conversation sort of did lead to it eventually. But it was also, I, I should add, I supplemented it with just like, you know, becoming more mindful of the art I was watching or the art I was consuming. Like I had tried to go to a museum and just like, which one of these do I like and why? And after going through a lot of it and seeing that I couldn't really detect any like grand pattern amongst people as to what makes this any good, I think it's just subjective appreciation of things. Then it became a lot more satisfying to me to be able to articulate myself like that. Like I, I find that being able to articulate your emotions is really, really satisfying. If not like, necessarily explain them or be able to like game them out I, I i don't think that's for me like i don't think i've been able to like gain control of what i feel um quite in the same way that you have james of like like i i don't feel like i can pull myself out of the holes i get into sometimes purely through like holding on to certain beliefs i kind of just like either bottle up my emotions or uh hide in my room for days on end but I, I get a supreme sense of satisfaction out of these conversations, just being able to like say what it is I feel, if not correct them, articulate them. Again, said a lot there that I'd love to respond to. Uh, agree. So I guess the to the last point, the the articulation. So although although I've like claimed that existentialism is like a core portion of my <laughs> personality I've honestly in recent days been um much more like keen on the sort of Aristotelian what um like what Aristotle believes ah thank the, you. the Aristotelian notion <laughs> it's sure. a fun part of the being pretentious is a fun part of philosophy a fun part <laughs> but uh yeah, Aristotle sort of had this idea that, like, what is the meaning of life? Oh, to be a good man. And, like, it sounds silly. And it is a little silly because it's like, what's good? There's a whole bunch of questions. But he, he did have this sort of idea 
which is a word I can't pronounce. It's like eudaimonium or something. I'll it basically just means well, well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's almost a, um, it, it's reminiscent of many Eastern ideas, uh, interestingly enough, because he believes that you have to take the quote-unquote right way, which is like very similar to the middle path, and you you have this sort of, I view it as, a, you know, like a sanding belt. Mm-hmm. It's like a sanding belt of experience. So you just slowly accumulate experience and experience um, and using your sort of powers of reason and the lens you view the world to adjust yourself accordingly. Um, so it's this constant feedback loop of experiencing adjusting the way you experience and changing yourself. So the analogy is that the experience is like the wood you're pushing into the block and you're getting more wood, but you're sanding it down as you get it. Okay. So actually I use, so the sanding belt, the, the cycle is like the reason, the reason I use a sanding belt is there's this sort of cyclical nature of like experience reflection. Sure. And so that's the process. Ah. That's the sanding process. So you're just seeing your sanding. I view as like, if you can imagine sort of a magnifying lens being mm-hmm. sanded. And the reason I like to use a magnifying lens is because I believe that we sort of view the world through a fluid and dynamic lens. So that like the reason you wake up uh, on the wrong side of the bed in the morning and have a bad day is because you are viewing the world through a negative lens. And the reason you're viewing the world through a negative lens is because of a whole slew of causes that made it, uh, of like stimulus that made you change your lens so you're negative. So Mm -hmm. like when I wake up and I'm grumpy uh, for a whole slew of reasons and I get oatmeal as my breakfast, I get pissed for, whereas another day I had a whole bunch of great stimulus the night before, wake up, get eggs or get oatmeal again and I'm thrilled. So I think there's this dynamic lens which we view the world through, which we ourselves can sort of uh, adjust based on experience and reflection. Hmm. Um, So all of that to say, first, I agree that any like deep change to yourself and like real insight, like self insight must come from experience. Um, But I think it's not just experience alone. I think it's reflection. Hmm. Uh, yes. Do you think that we do have the ability to always like change that lens though? Because I feel like in some situations, if your experience is like funneling towards like an attitude where you don't change the lens, then that'll also have like the reverse cycle where it like funnels you into a specific mindset that makes you less likely to be able to open your mind to things. And then that makes you like, like, you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah, totally. I also think that in addition to like, sort of this, uh, it's almost a negative positive feedback loop where negative emotions prompt more negative emotions. Um, I, I think there's also a chemical basis for all this, which is actually why, so I've, I used to be like a pretty hard subjectivist, like, Harry was saying the only objective truth I knew was that everything wasn't objective. Mm-hmm. But I've recently been really interested in actually 
some successors of your grandfather, Harry. Oh, uh, boy. Yeah, some people who uh, are cognitive philosophers with an interest in computer science. But uh, Yes, yes, yes. Uh, one of them is Daniel Dennett. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've read the name. And Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've been consuming probably too much Daniel Dennett media. And because of that, I've, I've started to see, like, there's, in my view, some biological constraints to subjectivity in that there's, while I say, like, you can adjust your lens, I do think that there is an extent to which we're bounded by what's in our brain. Mm. Uh, yeah. Well, when you say bounded by, what, in what ways so are it's you like bounded? How, how Jan was saying, if you get into this, like, uh, sort of feedback loop of negativity where uh, you wake up on the wrong side of the bed, so everything sucks, and because everything sucks, you see no way out, like, and you see no positivity. Mm. Um, I think part of that might have its basis in, I don't know, a lack of serotonin, like some biological reason for that. Mm. Um, as well as it, even, even in the um, example you used of art and subjectivity, there is a biological basis as to what art we find beautiful. Um, you mean on like an individual you, basis? Or oh, uh, like no, on no, no. All of humanity wide. finds certain ah. things beautiful. They, there's been a lot of... Um, I usually... little preface. I hate mixing science and philosophy, which is why I don't like the fact that I like Daniel Dennett because he's a big science philosophy guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't like mixing science and philosophy because I feel there's some philosophical... Mm-hmm. Like inherent philosophical issues with science. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, I'm going to be a hypocrite and do it anyways. Okay. Um, because there was some really interesting studies where they used uh, a bunch of, they took a bunch of abstract art by like Pollock and uh, who's the dude that does squares like Mondrier or whatever. That sounds right. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Um, and they made like accurate fakes, but ones that specifically didn't follow like the golden ratio and like Fibonacci sequences and fractal stuff. Mm. Um, and nearly everyone selected the real paintings that followed these sort of strict, like, guidelines uh, and called them more beautiful. Mm. As well as, like, the things in nature that we find beautiful usually follow this sort of golden ratio. Um, like, even the Eiffel Tower. Uh, it's, it's pretty crazy how it just shows up all over the place. So there are some, like, biological, like, in-the-brain evolutionary reasons why we find things beautiful and so there's these sort of constraints that our subjectivity works within Mm. how do you reconcile those constraints with what you were saying about like existentialism earlier where like you can do anything i mean no you still can Uh, Uh. because you you maybe okay so (laughs) uh we're gonna hit on all the major topics because now we're like leaning a little bit into free will that's why we're here um but i mean yeah so maybe there's some biological bounds to what you can do but that's already the case like i know i when i say you can do anything i don't mean you can fly and it's like i think a sort of similar basis like there there are some physical constraints 
And I think those might be more uh, constraining <laughs> than we originally imagined based on what I'm saying about subjectivity being sort of confined to this little box. But I still think within your sort of like biological ability, anything is possible. Mm. Like, like the, the, the you can do anything comment is I not mean, about... Yeah, like within, about your, like within your biological ability, but those could be like pretty harsh constraints depending on what your biological ability is. Like I was reading some stuff by John Haight uh, like a year or two ago and it was saying how some people are just predisposed to be like happier and some people like and you can you can do things to vary like your happiness to a point but some people are just predisposed to be happier than other people but even this like aside from how you feel about the way you you're living you can still live any way you want. That's what the existentialists believe. Like you can choose like in a free any, choice, in a free will kind of sense. Uh, not in a like. We're, I'm not even going to go that far. Um, <laughs> I mean, if you want my take on free will, I'll give it to you. But no, we'll save that for later. We'll save that for later. Yeah. Um, but it, it's more just like if you want to be, if you want to live in a shoe, you can like no one's stopping you from building a giant shoe and living in it whether that makes you happy or not might have a biological basis but like you can do that if you want to and there's no and you're no more closer to achieving some like greater goal than someone who has like a fortune 500 company that's what i mean in that in that sense isn't like the the freedom kind of dependent on the society you live in too so that's the the type of freedom I'm talking about is what is um, I'm referring to radical freedom, which is like an idea by Jean-Paul Sartre. Sartre, I don't know. People say it different Sartre. ways. I don't. You get Sartre. you guys take. Yeah, we take. Wait, wait, how do the how do the French people say it? Uh, South. Yeah. If it's S A T R E. Yeah. Yeah. Or S A R T R E. Sartre. Sure. Uh, so, yeah, so he, he has this belief, radical freedom, which is basically like any time you um, sort of feel that you have to do something, you're, you're lying to yourself. Hmm. Like, like you never really have to do anything, even if it's governmentally imposed, even if it's societally imposed. You don't actually have to do it. Is that what um, Kanye meant by slavery was a choice? Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I think that's an excellent example of sort of the two extremes you two are pushing for, or not the two, I guess that's Sartre. Sartre. I assume you wouldn't pronounce the E at the end. That wouldn't be very French. Whatever this guy would be saying is like, I, I think the way I'm interpreting this, which could be a little bit of a misrepresentation, and but it's sort of what aligns with my beliefs, is like, it's not so much the action of doing anything. It's the knowledge that in theory you can do anything. Like, so even if you don't do anything, but knowing that nothing divine is constraining what you do. Yeah. Like everything that constrains what you do, even if practically speaking, it might as well be like, you could refer to the all reaching power of the government as like near godlike at this point, or at least if you live in some sort of authoritarian hell state. Uh, but knowing that anything nothing is um 
can manipulate your conscience past like the constraints of reality or can manipulate you past the constraints of reality, which does include death, which is a whole different thing, might in some way like be freeing fully. Like even if you don't capitalize on it, just knowing that there's no realistically there or in theory, there's nothing that's gonna like come through the dimensions to stop you. There's nothing that's like gonna completely reframe reality. As far as we know of everything there is, you can try and do whatever you want and all that will stop you are things that actually exist physically, I should yeah. say. Yeah, that's, um, so it, I'm glad you, you said, use the word divinity because the whole, the concept, the, the word for the concept is actually bad faith. He says, when people feel they have to do something, it's bad faith because they believe that there's sort of this divine power holding them from doing what they want. It's like, oh, I can't quit my job because yada, yada, yada. Sartre's like, no, you can. <laughs> like, you right. can quit your job. It's just that in some cases, the, the good of quitting your job doesn't outweigh the bad. And so you don't. Um, yeah. Right. So it's not a should, shouldn't thing. It's a can, can't thing. Yeah. Can't. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> nah. nah. Philosophy jokes. Word. Um, all right. There's one thing I wanted to mention before. I think we should probably try and restructure ourselves a little bit more towards the whole, the high school thing. But sure, I just sure, wanted sure. to mention one conversation I had recently that was very quick, but I thought it was an interesting parallel to, um, Sisyphus, which is, you guys know the story of Prometheus? Um, yeah. who gave fire to man and then was forced to have an eagle eat his liver just over and yeah. over again. Well, I think that's an interesting, what is it? I don't see that as the same as Sisyphus because, one is physical torture, whereas what, the other one's really mental. Like, I think the, the hard part for Sisyphus, I've always imagined, is knowing that, like, he's about to reach the top, but then he doesn't. Like, it never yeah. seemed to me that the main problem with Sisyphus was just like, ow, 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 I keep having to move this boulder, my arms hurt, ow. Whereas Prometheus, it is, ow, 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 an eagle is eating my liver, ow. And sort of how that manifested into my understanding of the myth of Sisyphus a little more is more so the idea that, we can control emotional and mental anguish. Like that's sort of the point. Like there are tons of people in plenty of ways that I think you can't imagine happy in the way they're living right now of my belief. Like specifically people who are like, you know, constantly being um, tortured or like starving, starving, like say Yemen. Like I, I, yeah, I would not say that the myth of Sisyphus would be any comfort to anyone in Yemen right now, but sort of in acknowledging how privileged I am to be able to like apply the myth systems to my own life is like the anguish there is the idea of you're not moving forward, which is up to you how you want to see your, your sort of spiritual and like protagonism progression um, as you go. So that's, that's what we actually can decide is how I see it. Whereas there are other much more fun like the separation between emo the emotional and physical, I believe is a thing, even though, using certain amount like neuroscience and understanding the chemicals that go off in your brain you can draw i mean like like you know which chemicals make you feel what but for the sake of like practicality i i separate emotional and physical so as far as the mythicist of this goes i see it much more as sort of a uh, argument against emotional anguish feelings of hopelessness like things that you can't control just like that the human condition as opposed to using it to apply to people who are in like physical peril yeah yeah, no, no, I can, I can totally agree with that. Okay, so now to to restructure ourselves a bit. This is funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
exactly how this is expected to go because how could i was gonna say you can't like invite (laughs) no 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 absolutely not discussion about philosophy and not expect it to go absolutely off the rails all right so if we if we restructure ourselves a little bit back to school one of our questions was just going to be how does it sort of play a role in your day-to-day life but you've already really touched on that a lot so I was interested to hear as someone who is not only familiar with philosophy and philosophical talks, or not only familiar with like philosophical discussion in the day-to-day, but actually like sort of the grander, like more thought out ideas, like the hallmarks of modern philosophy. How do you see those sorts of ideas play into other subjects? Like if you look at history, English, Mm. English is kind of philosophy for you at least, but say (laughs) history, language classes, math, sciences, how does that sort of play into learning about other things? How has philosophy aided you in your other academic pursuits or herded potentially? Uh, yeah, totally. Uh, great question. Uh, but I think that as, as I sort of discussed, I'm, I'm a big believer about the sort of subjective lens we take. Mm-hmm. And I think academia or in high school, just like academics in general, um, a lot of it is about being able to sort of seamlessly go from one critical lens to another. Um, and that's what all of philosophy is. And so I think uh, philosophy is very useful in that it, it gave, I felt it gave me a different, uh, a multitude of critical lenses to view like historical time periods is through or different books through um, that it was almost like a cheat code. Like it, it got boring at points. It's like every essay I wrote <laughs> in junior year, it was like using the Kierkegaardian lens of the stages of life or like mm-hmm. something like that, like some existentialist framework. Sure. And it like would neatly drop down into three, three paragraphs. They're like, yeah, uh, have a nice five paragraph essay, like easy money. So in that way it was useful for school, but I think on like a broader sense, uh, it is truly useful to like be able to see the bigger picture implications of whatever you're doing. Uh, I mean, like I'm a big like biology guy mm-hmm. and like kind of foresee that as my career path. Um, but I think I'd be unable to like. Like, I, I think that philosophy allows you to figure out the why of what you're doing. And because of that, I don't know if, like, it has specifically given me tools to be a better biologist or, like, a better chemist or a better mathematician. But it certainly gives me some purpose in sort of, like, I don't know, trying to develop those skills. Hmm. Um, I also think that like there's also the cool thing about philosophy is it can make like any you can get an interesting conversation not just out of anyone but about anything so like of all those topics i just mentioned like of like i've had so many interesting like philosophic the philosophy of math questions and like philosophy like uh all all subjects can present philosophical questions whether they're like actually useful to the topic is a whole different story. I once saw an argument that uh, purported that philosophy is merely applied math. Or no, no, math is applied philosophy, other way around. 
wherein that you have to be able to accept that one plus one equals two before you can start saying that two plus two equals four. And those are arbitrary concepts that we're agreeing on. Um, not sure how much I, I believe that, but I thought it was a funny little way to put it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's also like one of the most famous philosophers, Bertrand Russell, spends like 500 pages proving, trying to prove one plus one equals two. Mm. Uh, so no, there's definitely, I think, a philosophical basis to every subject in school. Uh, Word. Yeah. I am occasionally, so I don't know, I feel like if, if any listeners and you guys uh, <laughs> got the presentation from uh, Mr. Fitzgerald, the ethics presentation junior year. Like, oh, yes, yes. Uh, yeah, he he had like a whole bunch of statistics about how like philosophy majors, like it's not like they have a higher employment rate, yada, 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 because there's this always this like stigma that like philosophers, I don't know, don't get a job. Yeah. At, and like, I personally am sort of skeptical of those statistics. Yeah, um, I agree. Because <laughs> I think... I, I don't know. I feel like it doesn't count all the like philosophically minded people who like, like I'm sure there's people who are just as good as philosophy, but are so sort of like entrenched in it that they don't even like go to school. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. uh, there's, there's a lot of paths that you can take. Also the critical lens thing I think is helpful, but I don't think that's necessarily as a result of philosophy. Like, I think that's what many people tout as the reason why philosophy is so helpful to many subjects. Um, Mm. But I'm not convinced that, like, I think it's more that people who have, like, who enjoy switching critical lenses are much more likely to, like, take up philosophy and therefore have, are sort of predisposed to be successful in a, school system that values that skill sure i concur i always hear that philosophy students have a high rate of acceptance to law school which hey my brother's in law school so lines up there's a and and equal n of one going towards that but yeah if we use our select data pool there 100 percent of philosophy majors go to law school (laughs) i didn't take stats (laughs) right well, I, I guess if we're, I, I feel like we've wound down a bit here. We had our really passionate discussions way at the beginning. I appreciated those, or towards sort of the middle third. But Jan, uh, I saw that you wrote in this last question. Do you want to perhaps use it to sort of give our give off more towards the, the climax? Um, and yeah. So do you think like talking and learning about philosophy has made you a more enlightened person? Or oh, just like an annoying it. jerk. Because <laughs> um, sometimes I feel the latter for myself. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like, I think definitely both. Like, I, I discussed how it has helped me through, like, difficult times, which I think, I don't know, I don't know what you, like, deem as enlightenment, but, like, I feel like the ability to, like, persevere through struggle is, a central tenet of whatever enlightenment is. Mm. And so in that way, it's been helpful. Uh, but also like, 
yeah, you sound like a dick sometimes when you're talking <laughs> philosophy. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, but I can. Uh, what I what I wanted to say in sort of my parting thoughts can is at I least tangentially related. Sure. Um, is I think that delving into like philosophical thought and sort of like taking a step back because that's really what it is is like I, I gave the whole like my technical definition but at the very broadest scale it's taking a step back and sort of contemplating um and so while when you're articulating that you might sound like an asshole or like when you're debating that you might be pretentious but i think the activity itself is none of those things. And I, I do truly think that it's, it's helpful because if you get like, it's just, uh, it's hard to, for me to imagine finding happiness and like real substance, like, and fulfillment in a life that involves like no sort of step back from the, the sort of daily drama, stresses, et cetera. Like, if you never ask why, I, I just can't imagine, like, what that would be like. It, it just seems so, like, empty and, and sad. Mm. Um, and I think that the, for me, asking, just constantly asking, like, why and sort of pursuing these philosophical questions and attempting sometimes Sisyphianly, like, sometimes futilely, to, to answer these big questions has led me to like key insights about myself. Um, like I, I described my whole belief that I'm now sort of trying to experience as much as I can and reflecting on it as much as I can so I can be a better person um, and curb the way I see the view of the world, the way I view the world based on those experiences and reflections. Additionally, I've learned that like, to me, what is really meaningful is connection. And so I, I have this sort of view of a like vastly interconnected world. Um, and I think one of the reasons, Harry, earlier you mentioned how articulating your feeling felt like good, like you got satisfaction from that. Real good. And, I, and I think one of, those, one of the reasons behind that is when you articulate your feelings, you make a connection. Like that's almost definitionally what it is. And when you connect with others, I find I just get in, like, that's inherently meaningful for me. Mm. Uh, and so I think that philosophy not only gives you an avenue to connect with others, uh, which is why for myself, it's pretty meaningful, but it also is what allows you to see that that's meaningful. Mm. Uh, so yeah, those are my parting thoughts. Word. Well, that was very nice. I, um, would love to thank you for your time coming out today. Oh, thank you for having me. Oh, yeah. No, this is excellent. We should certainly do this again. Uh, good to have part two and see if, you, uh, see if you're a good person yet. <laughs> Double check. We can uh, keep you on your tails. No, but yeah, thanks so much for coming out. Uh, y'all are probably on three. All right. <laughs>